I was reading this last week about the 70s in America. <laughs> it seems like a long time ago. I was just a, not even a teenager yet, I guess, in the first part at least. But one of the questions that was being asked in the late 70s after the um, election of President Carter, because he proclaimed himself to be a born-again Christian. You remember that? Some of you, some of you are like, Who, who's Jimmy Carter? But if you're old enough, you'll remember. One of the questions that was being asked in the media is that this, are we seeing a genuine religious revival in America? You know, moral majority was starting to get going, and, and um, you know, here we have a Christian president, and, you know, a lot of, by the way, a lot of the revivals among the student ministries, um, IVP and uh, Crusade, um, for Christ was uh, beginning, or at least had been really established by that point. And I, I was reading one guy, and he said, you know, he was being asked, he was a pastor, he was actually James Boyce, and he was asked many times, you know, is America seeing a revival? As, as we had seen a hundred years before that. And his answer was always the same. He said, no, there is no national conscience of sin. Consciousness of sin. There's no national consciousness of sin. No, there is no revival happening. In fact, there was no even personal. There was very few people that were necessarily convicted of their own personal sin. Now again, I'm not saying a lot of people weren't getting saved. But when it came to the, the nation as a whole, I'm talking America. There wasn't a national consciousness of sin When revival sweeps, he writes, over a people, the first evidence is a profound awareness of sin and sorrow for it. This was true of the great Welsh revivals a hundred plus years ago. It was true of the Wesleyan revivals. It was true of the Reformation. That's now 500 plus years ago. And it was even true if you go to Jonah chapter 3, which you don't have to turn there, but remember Jonah, he's called to preach and he's told to do it. And first of all, he basically kicks the dirt and says, I'm not going there. <laughs> there are enemies. And by the way, Nineveh was the enemy of the Jew. It says that God had called him the second time and Jonah went and he preached. And in verse 5 he says this, So the people of Nineveh believed God. After calling for repentance, the people believed God and proclaimed a fast. Now notice what happened. They believed, they proclaimed a fast, they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh. This is the, the king of Nineveh? What happens to him? And he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. In other words, there's a fast. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's, what he, that's the king speaking. And by the way, that happened and they repented and God relented. And for another hundred years they, did, they were not destroyed. But again, the first evidence 
of true revival. Now again, we're saying this because in Nehemiah chapters 8, 9, and 10, you are seeing true revival. True revival of a nation. But the first evidence of a true movement of the Holy Spirit is an awakened conscience towards sin. There's going to be a sorrow. There's going to be grief. There's going to be mourning. There's going to be weeping. And again, you see this in chapter 8, verse 9. They were mourning and weeping. Why? Because they had read the law. They had realized they had violated God's law. It hit them to the heart. But that awakened conscience then again leads to a genuine sorrowing over the sin. In other words, I do not want to go in that direction and a change of direction. So you have an awakened conscience, sorrow over sin, and we move in a different direction. I say that because again, um, who knows? (laughs) I'll use the word of the king of Nineveh. Who knows? But what the Lord may allow us to go through a revival. But if we ever do, it's because individuals are turning from their sin. And then as a corporate group, the America is turning from their sin. That's what real revival is. See, sometimes, sometimes we've, we walk by sight, not by faith. In fact, a lot of times. Uh, sometimes we judge how God feels about us by the amount of money in our wallet or in our checking account. It's interesting that Jeroboam II, that was the, that was the king of Israel, the northern ten kingdoms. But just before the Assyrians came down and destroyed them, which is actually Nineveh, the capital of Syria, they were very prosperous externally. Very prosperous. But again, their prosperity, their physical prosperity did not mean that God was pleased with their action. Okay? So again, the awakened conscience leads to sorrow over sin, leads to turning from their sin, which is true revival. True revival. And again, this is exactly what was happening in Jerusalem. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. They were having a true revival. It is proper to say that this perhaps was the greatest of all revivals in Israel. Okay? Um, now, again, you see the steps. We, we saw in chapter 8 that they opened the book and they read. And it says in verse 3, from morning until midday. That's six hours. They just read the book and they stood. That's, by the way, why we're going to continue to stand for the reading of God's Word. That's after an example of uh, Jerusalem and Nehemiah. Why? Because they respected. They wanted to hear from God. And not only did they read the book, but then they explained it. You saw that at the uh, end of chapter, in the end of verse 8. They read the book. They clearly explained it. They gave the sense of it so that the people understood the reading. And as soon as that happened, now you see them weeping in verse 9. And then again, they wept in chapter 9, verse 1. That, should be, that, that, should, that, that is how it should be. You hear the word of God. And if, you don't, if, your, sta- if your standard is not to the word of God, that should have, um, there should be a consciousness of that. There should be a, a weeping. And by the way, not just a weeping. Some people weep. Uh, Judas wept and hung himself. Uh, no, we, we've got to weep and turn from our sin. Okay? We've got to weep and turn. True repentance. And then actually, when we get to it next week, probably not next week, two weeks from now, chapter 10 is where they actually make a formal agreement. Actually write it down as a covenant and they signed it. I think sometimes we should sign something. You want to change? Here, let's write it down. Sign it. You know? Put your name to it. 
Yes, I want to have a changed life. So you see the reading of the Word of God and understanding it. Sorrowful sorrowful sin, that's chapter 9. And then chapter 10 is where they actually say, you know what, we don't want to go back. We want to sign our name. And um, they sign their name. By the way, did that last forever? No, because we find about 12, 13 more years later, they, um, they were back right into their old sins. That's the sad thing about people. We go back to our old ways. We do. That's why we have to continually be reminded of what the Lord wants in our life. Now, I find something interesting. Let me just, as we get into chapter 9, a couple very interesting things. First of all, we find that Nehemiah did not take advantage of the people's first outburst of weeping. See, in chapter 8, they were weeping. And, but see, again, in chapter 8, we found that it was the seventh month. And in the seventh month, the first day was supposed to be the Feast of, Tab- or a feast of Trumpets. For one day, first day. And then the 15th to the 21st day was the, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So they were reading the Word and they were just weeping over what they had not done. And yet, what did the Nehemiah and Ezra say? No, this is not a time for weeping. This is a time of rejoicing. The law says you're supposed to be in a feast mode. A lot of people right at that point would have said, let's take advantage of the moment. They're weeping. Let's get them focused on God in that sense. As far as confession. No. Feast. Ten days later. No, let's see. Fourteen, two weeks later. Feast for seven days. Now this is, this says this is the 24th day. That means it was three weeks removed from chapter 8, verse 1. Right? 20, 20 some days. But he didn't take advantage of the first outburst of sorrow. He wasn't trying to manipulate them. You ever find manipulation when it comes to people coming forward? Like a mob mentality. Let's sing just as I am 20 more times. No, no. Because the point is this. One, the the law of God had prescribed that they were supposed to be in feasting mode. That was part of the law. And the point is, is this. If it's really of God, it will be there. If God is really working just because it's three weeks later... It's not going to matter, right? I mean, if God is working, God is working. The time frame is immaterial. So Nehemiah did not work off of the people's emotions. But the other thing is, Nehemiah delayed the day of public repentance by, again, more than three weeks. I mean, it wasn't just a couple days. (laughs) I mean, that was a long period of time. But again, if God is working, God is working. And it didn't fade. That was the interesting thing. I, I find it interesting that, that they, got, they went through that, those times of feasting. And part of that was, you know, again, focusing on the Lord. And yet they went right into all that um, uh, uh, blessing, right into confession. Sometimes blessing makes us numb to God. For this group of people, the blessing of God led them right into the repentance part. Do you see what I'm saying? They came off of uh, a day of fasting and seven days of fasting, or uh, not fasting, feasting, <laughs> feasting, and yet they were, they were ready to confess. And it brings us right up to verse 1 of chapter 9. Now on the 24th day, the people of Israel were assembled with, again, fasting. Now again, this is about two days later. So they had come off of their Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, that ended the 21st day, although some say that uh, they would carry it over one final day. So possibly even to the 22nd of the seventh month. And now just two days later, it's the 24th day of this month, the seventh month. 
24th day. You know, what are they going to do? Are they just going to go on just living their normal life? Let's face it, we just had a great feast. No, they, it says they put on, they were fasting and in sackcloth and earth on their heads. Very similar to what you just read, I read to you in Jonah. You know, when, when, when people are soaring over their sin, what do they do? Well, these, these are outward expressions of sorrow. Again, fasting refers to self-mortification. What do you mean by that, uh, Pastor? I, I mean this, that I'm not number one. When you fast, you're saying, you know what? My need is greater than myself. My need is for God. In fact, I'm putting a self, self. <laughs> I'm putting myself aside because I want to focus on who God is during this fast. Have you fasted ever? Maybe some of you have never fasted a day or even one meal. I would encourage you to do that. It is a spiritual adventure. Some will say, well, during that time, you are going to be more spiritually in tune. Well, that is true, but I'm not going to say that you're spiritually uh, strengthened unless it's from God. Because actually, when you're fasting, sometimes you, get, you feel actually weak physically and sometimes even spiritually. Unless your hope is in the Lord. Unless your hope is in the Lord. But again, they, they fasted because they were saying, we're not number one. And they wore sackcloth. Sackcloth. That's a sign of humility, a sign of mourning. And they put dirt on their heads as a sign. I believe it has to do with distress. Again, humility. Their actions were showing that their heart was prepared. That's what I, Their actions were showing their heart was prepared to hear from God. That they were crushed, that they had not kept what God had said. Okay? In other words, their heart was attentive. I think of James where it says, you know, don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers. Their hearts were prepared. They were attentive. It was, an, maybe you use the word anticipatory. They were anticipating. You ever anticipate from the Lord, what blessing will you have for me today, Lord? I, I hope that you come even to a service like that. You know, I, I would hope that before you walk through those doors that you prepared your heart this morning. Lord, I'm coming to hear your word, but it can fall on deaf ears. Lord, so often I wander from your path. Lord, I need your spirit to give me wisdom. I need your spirit to make me attentive. Convict me in the areas that I need conviction. Their hearts were prepared. They were anticipatory, they were responsive, they were humble, broken, repentant. And you see that, by the way, even in chapter 8, again in verse 3, where it says they they were attentive to the book. Look at verse 6. Lifting up their hands, bowed their heads, worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I mean, this group of people just said, Lord, I need you. I need you to speak to me through your word. Look at verse 2. Not only were they confessing their sins, but then they were doing something about them. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. Possibly this refers to foreign marriages. We see this again in chapter 13. And we won't, we don't know all, I'm not sure exactly all what it means by foreigners. I think it's the foreigners and their ways. Like in chapter 13, we find out that they had broken the Sabbath because the foreigners didn't keep the Sabbath. 
They had married, married foreign wives and husbands. Um, things of that nature. Things that the law had said you shall not do, they were doing. So they separated themselves from the foreigners, but also from the, just say it this way, the ways of the foreigners. In other words, like Romans 12. Do not be conformed to the, this world, right? Is it easy to be conformed to this world? The ways of this world, the thinking of this world, the values of this world? I mean, if you summarize it, what does this world live for? Self, me, pleasure, now. What does God tell you to live for? Him, future, <laughs> you know, not, not pleasures of this world, but pleasures of the next. Live for reward, live for his glory. So anyways, they separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood. Boy, there's the second time the word stood. I wonder if we should just go through the whole service standing. Now, let's not get too radical here. No, they stood and confessed their sins. Their, those, the sins, by the way, is the transgression of the law. That's what the word sin there. And the iniquities probably have a lot to do with the, and the guilt that's associated with it. So they're confessing the transgressions and also the guilt. I am guilty, you know, they would say. It's not my brother's problem. It's not my nation's problem. It's not even, you know, as far as um, I have a... Chemical imbalance. I have environmental problems. Well, you know, we're all unique. I understand that. I am not, but the point is, is they were accepting responsibility. That's the whole point. They took responsibility for their sin. You know, it's like David, Psalms 51. We turned there last week. But, you know, he, he just named, you know, he called his sin, sin and iniquity and transgression and um, sin, you know, and just four different words. But the point is, he was covering every base saying, listen, I'm the guilty one here. You're righteous, I'm guilty. It's hard. I mean, it's hard just to do that. We, we are selfish. I've been, I've been really, uh, really enjoying the marriage series. Uh, you know, I've been more of a facilitator and adding a few thoughts. But Paul Tripps, you know, in the ABF. And one of the things he said a couple weeks ago is, this is how you should respond to your spouse. Look at the spouse and say this, I am my, marriage, I am my greatest marriage problem. Wouldn't you love to have your spouse say that? They'll probably agree with you. <laughs> I am my marriage, I'm, I am my greatest marriage problem. Well, you are, right? You, you're the one that brings it to the table. You've got your sins, they've got theirs. Well, anyways, let's go on. Well, this is what they did. They confessed their sins, notice this, their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Boy, talk about thorough in verse 2. They were confessing their sins, but remember, they had been listening to the Word of God for three hours. They were not only confessing their sins, but they were also saying, and we see the sins of our fathers that has been carried into this generation. So they were saying this, and Lord, you are totally, 100% guiltless. You're not guilty. We find ourselves where we find ourselves because of us, not because of you. And look at verse 3, and they, they stood up in their place, oh, interesting, and read from the book of the law. Now, this, by the way, this is where he's going back, okay? He, he's t- what he does is he says, this is what happened, and now let's get more information. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law, the Lord their God, for a quarter of a day, again, three hours, and another quarter of it, they made confession. 
That is the reflective of PL, which is the intensive. They really confessed their sin. They were laying it all out. And they really worshipped the Lord their God. The intensive. Once again, you see the connection here. The reading of the word, the understanding of the word, then the confession. That's how it goes. That's why if there's ever a revival in America, a true revival, it's because the, 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 the country goes back to the book. Without the book, you can't have true revival. You might have a morality change, although we've been having a real morality change in the wrong direction, but you might have a morality change, but unless there's a connection to the book, the, the Lord's book, the Bible, you're not going to have a true revival. But their hearts were re, re, receptive, very, very receptive. It's, like I said, this is, as one man said, at this time the remnant probably reached, quote, the highest moral state they ever occupied from the Babylonian captivity to the coming of Messiah 400 years later. This was the peak right here. They had come back from captivity. Their hearts were prepared to hear because they had gone through such suffering and they were ready to listen. They were ready to grab a hold of what the Lord had for them. You know, again, let me just link. Boyce brings out one final point in this whole revival I think is interesting. He said, notice the link statements. Quote, there can be no genuine forward moral progress for either a nation or an individual without an acknowledgement of and sorrow for and a true turning from sin. That's the first thing. Got to have that. But there can also, number two, can be no true sense of what sin is or knowledge of why it is sinful without a hearing of and response to the law of God. So you've got to have sorrow, but the sorrow has to come from the word of God. And then finally, consequently, consequently, consequently thank you, revival must be preceded by, again, sound teaching, sound preaching on the word of God. You've got to know what it says. It's got to, that's why we, we must not fall into being conformed to this world. You know, the way that they present abortion, the way that they present homosexuality and homosexual marriage. By the way, how they present environmentalism. We'll get to that in one moment. But again, you see the connection here. You got the word and prayer, word and prayer. They heard the word and they confessed in prayer. The Levites were confessing, the people were confessing. I liked what um, Harry Ironside, 100 years ago, wrote on this. He said, you know, there's got to be a balance between word and prayer. Quote, one who gives himself preeminently to the word, neglecting prayer, confession, will become heady and doctrinal. Like, likely to quarrel about points and be occupied with the theoretical Christianity to the hurt of his soul and the irritation of his brethren. <laughs> yeah. You ever get someone that just likes to argue? You talk about irritating. Because it's not about arguing points. It's about transformation of life. By the way, I will stand and argue for the deity of Christ, but the deity of Christ changes me. I'm not God. He is. Transformation as well. On the other hand, Ironside writes, one who gives himself much to prayer while neglecting the word is likely to become exceedingly introspective, mystical, sometimes fanatical. 
But he who reads the word of God reverently and humbly, seeking to know the will of God. See, there's transformation. And then gives himself to prayer, confessing and judging what the scriptures have condemned in his ways, words and thoughts, will have his soul drawn out in worship. And thus grow both in grace and in knowledge, becoming a well-rounded follower of Jesus Christ. He ends, apart from a knowledge of the word, prayer will lack exceedingly in intelligence. For the objective must ever precede the subjective. Objective being the word of God. Subjective is how I relate. But not be divorced from there. And, you know, we got to be careful because... You know, some of us can just read and read and know and know and understand and understand, but is it affecting our life? It's the person that has read the book the most should be cut to the heart the greatest. So that's the, that's the preparation, those few verses right there. Let's get into verse 4, the public prayer of the of penitence by the Levites. On the stairs of the, of the Levites stood, and he names eight guys, and they cried with a loud voice. But that's a great voice. They wanted to be heard. Cried with a loud voice. One man said this was the longest prayer recorded in the Word of God. What I find interesting, and we can only get through a few verses, is it's really mostly praising the Lord. <laughs> it's not, see, this is what's neat. is As you get closer to light, your darkness is shown. That's what happens. They keep... What it is, it's a prayer about the greatness of God, but as He is great, then, uh, then our, their sins were exposed. They praised God and also sorrowfully confessed their sin. Now, let's put this into context. Just a few months earlier, they had traveled. Many of them were the exiles. Some of them were already exiles that came back. But they had come 52 days, built the wall, started the first, in, uh, in the seventh month, the first day, they had a feast. 15 days later, 14 days later, they had another feast. I mean, this is only a few months. They are still among the sand ballots and Tobias. They are still, many of them do not have their own home. They don't even know where their next meal is coming from. They didn't have time to plant crops. By the way, this was a real community effort. That's why they were told the chapter before, make sure that as you go to the feast, you give some to your brethren. Because some of them had already been established there. They had some crops. There was a number of them that were exiles. They had not even had time to get a home, let alone crops. And yet they're praising the Lord. It tells us that we can praise the Lord in the midst of very difficult times, right? See, some of us would say, how can I praise the Lord for all that he has done? I'm living under such difficult times. That is just temporary. So they're praising the Lord. And look at what he says in verse 5, the work of God in creation. I love this verse. This is unbelievable. Verses 5 and 6. And then the Levites and the eight guys. Notice I just keep saying the eight guys. It is really hard to say these names. But they said this, stand and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. And that word bless there is in the intensive. Really bless the Lord. In fact, I was looking up some other passages, Psalms 103, a familiar passage. You don't have to turn there, but you might want to write it down. There again, when he says bless the Lord, it's in the intensive. This is David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then he names 
Some of the benefits in Psalms 103, who forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with loving, steadfast, excuse me, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. At the end of that chapter in verse 20, 20, bless the Lord, O you his angels. 21, bless the Lord, all his hosts. 22, bless the Lord, all his works. And, and all those are in the intensive. And I thought, you know, isn't that true? If you're going to go to the almighty king, aren't you going to put a lot of oomph in your blessing towards him? Bless him, bless him, bless him. And same thing is here. Stand up and bless the Lord. There again, that word stand up. Have you noticed how many times it says stand up? Don't get comfortable. Oh, I wish they wouldn't have me standing when I'm singing. Wait, you're the servant. We're the servants. Again, I'm not going to ask you to stand during the whole preaching service. But, you know, it's a privilege. We're standing before the King of Kings. I hope your heart is prepared to worship. I hope your heart is prepared to take... Uh, in memory of what Christ has done, because there's a penalty if you don't, right? He's going to chastise you. Second part of that, he says, Blessed, that's again in the intensive, be your glorious name which is exalted. That's ex- uh, in the intensive as well, above all blessing and praise. I mean, everything there, all those verbs on blessing are all in the intensive. Holy, holy, holy. No! Well, I'm not going to sing because my wife will say, "Mm." I can make a joyful noise to the Lord. I just won't say it quite as loud. Romans says this, Do not despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and long-suffering. Don't you know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? I think that's what that whole... Uh, prayer is really about. Don't you know that the the goodness, because that's all they're going to be talking about, the goodness of God, the goodness of God. There's a few places where they say, but you, Israelites, but you, even here, you're not following the Lord, but he's good. And it should be the goodness of God that drives you. See, sometimes we think it's the terror of God, the fear of God, and those are good too, by the way. But But you know, for a mature Christian, it should be just the goodness of God that drives us to want to walk with him. Because I'll tell you what, our God is good. You look at other gods of other false religions, they're not good. They, f- they fill their people with terror. There's no security. You do the wrong thing, you end up in fire. God says, I rescue my people and they are completely secure from the very moment of their salvation. That's good. That's real good. When Jesus said, it is finished, there was nothing else to be done. Have you received him? That's what we celebrate. We celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. And that when he died, there was nothing else to be added. He, he took the full penalty. He could say, it is finished. That means it's not by works of righteousness that we are saved by his mercy. So we come before the table remembering, it's all him. It should be very easy for us to serve him. It only gets hard because our self gets in the way. We start living for our little kingdoms, as Paul Tripp so often says in that series. Yeah, yeah, it's about me. No, it's not about me. It's about him. That's why Psalm, Psalmist in 34, 
chapter 3, 4 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That again is in the intensive. And so he starts out in the first praise. And I was really thinking I was going to get through more. I guess I'm not going to. But let me give you the first verse here. Verse 6, he, he, he begins, see he's been saying I'm going to bless you. Now he's going to tell you how he blesses him. In verse 6 he says, you are the Lord. That means there is no other one. You alone, unique. You are God and there is no other, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, he is one. Well, we know from the New Testament that three persons, but one essence. He's the Lord, you alone. And you've made the heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is, in it, is on it, the seas and all that is in them. That's the creator. And you preserve, that's in the intensive again, you're the preserver of all them. And the host of heaven worships you. That's, by the way, in the PL too. I keep saying that because the PL means intensive. I mean, it's, I, I've told you many times, I, I just look for, I look for the intensive verb in, in Hebrew. It's just so interesting because where you take it, if you took a glass and you said it's a cal, uh, uh, factual verb. Factual verb means this. The, the uh, glass dropped and broke. You know, maybe a few. When you use the intensive, it means you took the glass and you smashed it. And then you took a hammer and you were intensive about it. It was smashed. So when you say the glass was smashed, it doesn't mean that it just broke a little bit. It was smashed. That's the intensive, right? I always think of the word, you know, that. That's what he says. When you, when you bless the Lord, don't just, you know, well, he's good. He's great. Yeah, he's unique. I mean, the psalmist is saying and Nehemiah is saying, no, no, he is great. He's the only one. He's the unique. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. In fact, let me just end here as we go into communion. First is that he's the only unique God. You are God, you are the Lord, you alone. That's unique. But then he says this, the creator. The creator. By the way, when he says the creator, he's going back to Genesis 1. I I would encourage you, make sure that you think that the six-day creation of this earth is an essential truth. I keep hearing people say that that's like a secondary truth. That's not secondary. That's a foundational truth. God created this world in six literal days. Is that really provable? Well, just look at how he kept writing it. I'll just read a few of these. Verse 5, And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day, and there was evening and morning the fourth day, and evening and morning, right? That is an absolute critical, critical concept. Critical. That's a foundational. That's worth dying for right there. Well, couldn't God have used evolution? Answer? No! Evolution is dependent upon death. He couldn't have used evolution. Because it says that death didn't come till after sin. You can't say you're theistic evolution, uh, a theistic evolutionist and say, well, you know, I'm kind of wetting the... No, that's wrong. That's against... By the way, every time you do that, a person does that, they are... Oh, what's the word? They are minimizing the glory of God in creation. They're minimizing it. 
They are diminishing it. No, he didn't use evolution. It was six days. I always think of my wife, because she's a good painter, you know, and I always think of someone taking her painting, and I want to make a few adjustments. No. Accept it or reject it, but don't try to change it. Creation, accept it or reject it. Don't try to change it. And then the third thing is, and you preserve all of them. Colossians 1.16 says this. Colossians 1.16 says, In him all things consist. Hebrews 1 says it's similar. What do you mean consist? It means that in Jesus Christ all things hold together. I, I love the Colossian passage and commentaries that, that comment on it. One of them said this. Uh, some guy named Dr. Chestnut. I don't, but he wrote a book the, called The Adam Speaks. And this is what he says. Consider the, 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 the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he, when he finally looks into utter amazement at the pattern he had now drawn of the oxygen nucleus. For here are eight positively charged protons closely associated together with, with the confines of the tiny nucleus. With them are eight neutrons a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged, eight with no charge. I hope Steve Reck is here because he can confirm this. But the point is, is this is what the person says, like a physicist. How do they hold together? How do they hold together? And they've called it the nuclear glue, the binding energy. Well, we know how it holds together. Jesus Christ holds it together. By the way, someday... Peter says this with the strong, excuse me, the heavens will pass away and are with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. He allows them to poof. And whereas there was creation in Genesis 1, there will be the uncreation in Revelation. Maybe even equal to the creation where everything is gone in the new heaven and new earth. By the way, that's how the earth ends. And this should give glory to God as we go before his table. The earth does not end by the polar caps melting. That is a lie. And yet I read a whole a pay, a thing on some people, a bunch of pastors. It's called the Evangelical Declaration for the Care of Creation. This is what one of the statements say. As followers of Jesus Christ, quote, because we have sinned, we have failed in our stewardship of creation. Therefore, we repent of the way we have polluted, distorted, destroyed so much of the Creator's work. By the way, we don't curse the earth. He did. Genesis chapter 3. Sin came. He cursed. He holds it all together. Someday, it will be destroyed. Not by our efforts. You know what we're called to do? Have dominion and subdue it. You take countries that are progressing, what are they trying to do? Subdue the earth. Countries that are going backwards, what are they doing? Like we are right now. No, let it go back to nature. Have you ever seen how people live when they're in nature? You know, like the tribes in New Guinea? I don't want to run around with a loincloth. I like the energy. Right? Wow. Or as one guy said this. Well, this is what's sad. This is what's very sad. They say because of the policies of global warming, between 20 and 50 million people will die in the next few years. And I've heard that a number of places. 
20 to 50 million. Why? Well, think about it. Energies are, uh, prices going up. Corn that could have been eaten is now used for fuel tanks. People that are only earning two, three dollars a day, they're starving. There's massive amount of starvation. Well, we don't see it here yet. Other parts of the world, Africa, very, very hard. See, it's, I believe it's directly from Satan. I know that sounds very strong, but doesn't Satan try to destroy? See, Jesus Christ, he's the, every time you see a rainbow, God said, I'll never destroy this earth by flood again, right? So, whereas one guy, <laughs> I like this, you know, he said, hey, listen, I would vote for global warming. In fact, if someone says, I'm, I'm for global warming, he's my candidate. Why? More crops, warmer climate, less people die of, you know, exposure. I mean, there are so many, so many things. In fact, CO2, that whole thing is probably caused specifically by sunspots. We've got to be careful as Christians. We don't get emotional about this. No, no, no. He's the pres- you preserve all of them. So go ahead and step on the grass, kill a deer, cut down a tree, drill foil. Now! Right? Now, I'm not saying, you know, you know, throw your garbage in my front lawn. <laughs> but the point is, is we do not live in a fragile ecosystem that, has been, that is billions of years old. We live in a very robust, young earth that's coming to a final conclusion and it's all, be, it's all determined by Jesus Christ. All by him. And so when I read it, I was at a Days in this last week, it said this, save the planet with a towel, a sheet, and a pillow. Here's how. Just hang up your towel, use them again. No, no. Give me a new towel. And finally, I just had to get that off my chest. I just... And finally, it says in that last part of the verse, and the host of heaven worships you. That's in the PL. That's in the intensive. By the way, does this all lead us to communion? Even that little rant about the, yes, creation? He created this. John 1, he created this. Hebrews 1, everything that started was because there was a purpose. By the way, God worked it this way. From the end back... From before the foundation of the world, we were chosen, those who are believers. Now, what does he do? He works it back. Well, if you're chosen, what has to happen? You've got to be created. All right, universe, earth, Adam and Eve, fell, Jesus Christ. It's really working. He planned to have a bride for his church. He planned to redeem a people for himself. That's the purpose of all this creation, right? To Christ come and die for a people that would be his own, that throughout eternity they would be the trophies of his grace. The angels themselves would worship. Look at what our God did. Taking sinful people, sending his own son as a sacrifice so that they would be redeemed. That's what all this earth thing is about. That's what it's here. We're not here billions of years. This is small earth, short time, and it all has a purpose. And it really does all revolve around the table. He came to this earth to rescue you so that in eternity you're the trophies of his grace 
Sing his praises, and are you doing that? And the question is, have you received him as your Lord and as your Savior? And if you have, is your heart right with him? Because he said, do not partake in an unworthy manner. So let's bow our heads and ushers come forward. Father, again, we just thank you for your word because it gives us clear understanding of not only salvation and our need for your son, but it tells us so much more about how we should live here. Father, help us to be about your business, not about saving this planet, but about seeing people come to know you as their Lord and Savior. Father, we know that we just live on a disposable planet. That We're just here for a short time, and this planet is here just for a short time, and then your plan will be executed. All that we have will be destroyed on this earth and a new heaven and a new earth. And we look forward to the day of the new Jerusalem. Father, help us to live for eternity. Not for the here and now, for pleasure for ourselves. And Lord, as we come before your table, please give us insight into each one of our lives. Whether that is truly the case. Whether we're living for our kingdom of yours. Help us to judge ourselves rightly so that we might be prepared so that we would partake in a worthy manner. And again, thank you for these reminders. May we glorify you in Christ's name. Amen.